But uh, I, I'm sure there's some vile trolls out there that were real disappointed that we didn't have a live streamed message last week. Uh, we didn't get it turned on, and sometimes there's technical difficulties. And we're not here to preach for the world out there primarily. We're here to edify the body of Christ within the walls of this church, as we're instructed to do by the Great Commission. But it, it, it is always good for the word to go out, and it's good when technology allows for that. But we're not dependent upon that here. We don't have to live stream to preach God's word and to grow by. But when we do, we hope that believers out there are encouraged, that someone without Christ might stumble upon the preaching and be humbled before the Lord. And we also hope that those who hate God will be convicted and they will be trapped. The big bear trap of God's Word would snap shut on them. And so I know there's been trolls that really are dying to get a picture of me with a dangerous weapon in my hand. They want to try to trap me and accuse me of violating a court order. So I want to give you all another opportunity this morning. If anybody wants to take a picture, here I am with a dangerous weapon in my hand and proud to stand here with it. It's a great sword. It slices and dices. Has more power to overthrow nations than what was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. And the nations are going to find that out one day. They're going to find that out one day. And we've been studying the end of this book, the last book of the New Testament, for more than 10 years. And today, we are in the last verse of that book. We're in the last verse of the Bible, my friends. This dangerous weapon that I hold here in my hand. The last book. The last verse of the last book. The very end of the Bible. And so I think that's something worth noting. I think that's amazing. I've never heard a message on the last verse of the Bible. Never in my entire life. But I'm going to preach one to you today. We've been talking about some last in the scriptures that we see here in Revelation chapter 22 beginning with verse 6. The last exhortation of the Bible. Verses 6 through 15. It's last invitation. Verses 16 and 17. It's last warning. Verses 18 and 19. It's last promise. The first half of verse 20. It's last prayer. The last half of verse 20. And then today... We're going to look at its last blessing. Here in the last verse of the Bible, we see the Bible's last blessing. What is a blessing? Webster's 1828 dictionary defines it thus, a wish of happiness pronounced upon someone. Or a prayer, these are my words, imploring good fruit or benefit Upon another. A blessing is a prayer in essence that implores good benefit or good fruit upon another. And that's what we see here at the end of Revelation. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In this case, this blessing is pronounced upon you all. By John the Apostle. We say it here in the South, y'all. <clears throat> the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with y'all. 
You see, y'all is just a contraction in Southern English of you all. That's all it is. Now remember, when you read this King James Bible, this glittering, double, sharp-edged broadsword, not a rusty old dagger like some of these modern Bibles. When you read the King James Bible and you see a Y word in English, you, which is objective, or ye, which is nominative or subjective, it's always plural. The T words, thee, thy, thou, thine, those are singular. Modern English, we don't differentiate between you singular and you plural. So I could say you need to repent, and you might think I could be talking to one individual, or I could be talking to the whole room. I'd have to define it in the context. That's modern English. We've lost that ability. But in the, in, in, in the English of the King James, if you see a T word, it's singular. If you see a Y word, it's plural. So this blessing is not pronounced upon an individual. It's not even pronounced upon a single body of believers. It's pronounced upon you all, the entire body of believers. I find it interesting that Biblical truths sometimes are repeated in the Scriptures. And the Scriptures need not say something more than once for it to be authoritative. But there are truths, blunt truths, that pop up more than once in the Bible. There's a blunt truth that speaks directly to some of the trolls out there that like to pick these messages apart and they like to try to find something in there. They go bonkers over things that we say. I'm sure it happens to other churches who live stream as well. But there's a truth repeated twice for those trolls, for those vile individuals in the Psalms. And it's repeated twice in the same hymn book. In Hebrew, we say, Amar naval lubanu ein Elohim. It's exactly repeated twice in Hebrew. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Same hymn book. Twice. The Bible says something once, it means business. If it says it twice, really means business. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That includes the fool who openly denies God. And it includes the fool who claims to fear God so that he can mock Christians. Fools. The fools have said in their heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, 1, Psalm 53, 1. We also see a blunt truth of Jesus Christ mentioned three times in the same chapter and in the same sermon. If you go to Mark chapter 9, Jesus Christ speaks of hell. And he describes it as a place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 44. But he repeats it twice more. Mark 9, 46. In Mark 9, 48, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a place, not where the wicked are annihilated, but where their worm, their vile, debauched, tainted, sinful, wicked spirit dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Christ didn't say it once. He didn't say it twice. He said it three times in the same sermon. And he meant business. Now these modern Bible translators and modern day churchianity is real uncomfortable with that. 
And that's why in some of these modern Bibles, you're going to see Mark 9.46 and Mark 9.48 completely missing from the New Testament. Now, they don't change the numbering. They just take it out. And so what happens is verse 45 goes right to verse 47, and then you have verse 49. They just take it out. They can't handle Jesus calling hell a place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, not once but twice but three times. So when the Bible says something multiple times, we really need to pay attention. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. Twice it's said in the same hymn book, the Psalms. Hell is a place where the wicked are tormented for all eternity. Jesus warned of it three times in the same sermon. Now, what does any of this have to do with the last blessing of the Bible? It has something to do with it. Did you know that the exact same blessing, the exact wording, not just in Hebrew, but also in the Koine original Greek, the common Greek, the street language of the time when Jesus' apostles carried out the work of the Great Commission, that exact blessing, that exact wording is also found In 2 Thessalonians 3.18, the end of Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 5.28, we have the exact same blessing except the word all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So it's just minus the word all. Philippians 4.23, the exact same verse. Exact same words in uh, Greek. The exact same words in English. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And then at the end of Philemon, we have the same blessing. The only difference being that instead of you all, Paul says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Your is plural there. Okay, so Paul's Paul's blessing there even goes beyond the individual to whom that epistle was written. So we have this blessing that appears multiple times in the New Testament. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now if this appears at least four times almost word for word, then we ought to pay attention. It has something to say to us. Now the end of 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, all have a very similar final blessing and format. Almost every single one of Paul's epistles concludes with a formulaic blessing almost identical to what we see here at the end of the book of Revelation. So I could technically preach this same sermon if I were preaching the last verse of the epistle to the Philippians or 2 Thessalonians. I just find that interesting and it highlights that these are not just insignificant words. They're not just a few ending, uh, 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 it's not just an ending diatribe or just a little conclusion on a letter that we should overlook. No. Perhaps it's something we should use more often in our speech and our discourse one with another. Blessing one another. Because the ultimate blessing is not material wealth or prosperity or health. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
When we see this blessing here at the end of Revelation, it's a pretty important clue in terms of church history. It's a clue that John was familiar with Paul's epistles when he wrote the book of Revelation. Way back in our introduction, I talked about how Revelation was probably penned on the Isle of Patmos somewhere around 95 AD during the reign of the emperor Diocletian, a wicked ruler. His rule instigated the second empire-wide persecution of Christians, second to Nero's when Paul and uh, Peter were martyred. John had access to what Peter called scriptures in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he wrote Revelation. And using the same blessing here that Paul used is a clue of that. If you go to 2 Peter... Now remember, Paul and Peter had some conflict in the church. It's possible to have conflict. Paul rebuked Peter to his face sharply. And yet to have a love one for another that covers a multitude of sins. Look what Peter says here about Paul toward the end of his life in his last epistle. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord, the grace of our Lord, is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And also in all of his epistles. You know how every single one of Paul's epistles concludes? It includes with a, with a reference to the long-suffering of our Lord. It concludes with a blessing of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter's actually alluding to the end of Paul's epistles here. Just like is John does here at Reve in Revelation. And also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So here we have Peter acknowledging our beloved brother Paul, the Apostle Paul, acknowledging all his epistles and, and putting them on the same table of authority as the other scriptures. So Peter had access to the epistles of Paul and Peter acknowledged them as scripture. John, in the closing of the canon of the New Testament, was familiar with Paul's epistles. He had access to what Peter calls scriptures 30 years earlier. Second Peter was written about A.D. 66, just before his death under Nero's persecution. Revelation was written about 30 years later. Paul still had access. Now, a lot of folks out there, a lot of blowhards want to talk about how we can't trust the Bible. It was some church council, some council at Carthage that told us what books belonged in the Bible. Now that's ignorance and willful ignorance repeated by atheistic, vile individuals who've never picked up an original source in their whole life and don't know anything about church history and don't know anything about um, uh, the history of the early Christians and who just like to repeat or regurgitate 
things they've been told or things they might see on a website or something maybe some college professor pronounced one day. My friends, regurgitation is not wisdom. An education that regurgitates is no education at all. Did you know it's possible to be extremely educated and yet be without wisdom? It's possible to be uneducated and to be very wise. The Bible is testimony of that. But there was a council where the Eastern and the Western churches came together in A.D. 397. We talked about this in the introduction of this book 10 years ago. Some of you all weren't there. But there was a council where representatives from all the churches came together to affirm what was consensus among the believers, that the New Testament contained 27 books that were authorized, inspired, and preserved Scripture. A council didn't come together to pick out books. A council came together to affirm what was consensus among Christians. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that word consensus, but something doesn't become consensus overnight. It takes a while. It's consensus in our society today that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. A man can actually get married to a man. That's general consensus in this wicked, vile country of ours today. But we all know that that consensus wasn't built overnight. We all know that. We all know that its seeds were sown long ago. It's consensus in this country today that our federal government has the power to control states and that our federal government has the power to take away our individual freedoms or our constitutional freedoms in its own interest. That's consensus. That's even consensus amongst average Americans who've never read the Constitution before, amongst pig cops who've taken oaths to defend the Constitution, but they couldn't even repeat to you the five aspects of the First Amendment. That's consensus. But friends, that consensus wasn't born overnight. That consensus began when our federal government began to eat away at those things. You've got to go all the way back to Abraham Lincoln for that. We are reaping and we are seeing evil consensus today that reflects attitudes that have been around for a long time. On a positive side, the Council of Carthage recognized the consensus of believers. There were believers carrying around 27 book New Testaments, including Revelation. They were acknowledging these books as the scriptures, not because some council affirmed it, but because they bore testimony to the inspiration and preservation of the Holy Ghost. And that consensus was well known. That's pretty incredible that there was a consensus amongst the believers in the 4th century long before there was ever a printing press. And all of the copies were done by hand. We can trust that this book, Revelation, and every book that's in between these covers is God's Word simply because I can turn to it right now in my language today. John was familiar with Paul's writings and he uses Paul's standard closing to his epistles. Because he was familiar with it. Now here's an interesting piece of trivia for you folks. 
John, the, the Apostle John, is the only New Testament writer who had access to all the other New Testament books when he sat down to write his own under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He had access to the entire New Testament minus his five books, the Gospel of John, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation. He had access to it. The Gospel of John was probably written, could have been written as early as A.D. 85, or it could have been written while he was also while he was on the Isle of Patmos. We can't know. John is also the only New Testament writer to have written down the Scriptures under the influence of the Holy Ghost after the Jewish temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. We can't ignore that. So those who want to teach that all of these prophecies about the rise of Antichrist and the tribulation are referring to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. You know what they have to do to try to prove that viewpoint? They have to take John and they've got to move his writings back prior to A.D. 70. Even though students of John, people who lived contemporary with him, and who wrote to the churches say that John was on the Isle of Patmos during the the persecution of the emperor Domitian. So when you start filtering scripture through your own preconceived theology, you end up having to do all kinds of stuff to keep your theology alive. It's just like the Jehovah's Witnesses. The early JW teaching taught that the followers of Charles Taz Russell and others, there was a judge, I can't remember his name, but they were the 144,000 mentioned there in Revelation chapter 7. But JW theology ran into a problem when its membership eventually exceeded 144,000. Then they had to start backtracking. Then they had to start making changes. Beware of theology that has to force the Scripture to change or has to take and change what has been accepted as standard Christian testimony for centuries. John wrote after the fall of the temple in A.D. 70. His prophecies were not preterists looking back on the destruction of the temple or foretelling it. His prophecies were foretelling the end and the consummation of all things. And just like I said in our introduction more than 10 years ago, we have no reason to take this to be anything other than what it says, literally, in its proper historic and grammatic context. For John, when he wrote had access to the rest of the New Testament. John uses the standard closing for all of Paul's epistles as his audience, the seven churches there in Asia Minor, would would have known that standard closing well. He knew it well. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He didn't have to come up with his own. There was already a good blessing out there, a good one that the church was familiar with. And John stuck it, in, stuck it in there. Who is the you all here in this last blessing? Well, Revelation tells us. Let's remind ourselves of a few verses. Who is the you all upon whom John bestows this blessing? Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation, not revelations, of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of St. John the Divine. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him, Jesus, to show unto 
His servants. The you all are the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those that were alive at that day and those that are alive today. Us. Isn't it a joy to be considered Jesus Christ's servants? But remember what he told his disciples toward the end of his life. I don't even call you servants anymore. From henceforth, I call you friends. What an amazing thing to be thought of as the friend of God. Because of what Jesus did on that cross, shedding his blood and raising up from the dead, his servants can be his friends. Just like Abraham was the friend of God. Who is this you all? His servants, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's look at verse 4 in chapter 1. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. The you all are the seven churches in Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, chapter 2. Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, chapter 3. Now do you remember when we did our study on the seven churches long ago... I was very clear that these were actual churches in John's day. Some of them, like Ephesus, were around in Paul's Paul's day, but there's others that are only mentioned here in the New Testament that arose up after the ministry of Paul and Peter and the other apostles. These were actual churches. But because this is a book of prophecy, they were also given, not because they were the only churches, there were other churches in Asia Minor, but because these were types of all sorts of churches that exist at all times in church history. What's the proof of that? How do we know their representative? We know their representative messages because John says in each one of them, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And then we live in a unique place in human history, unlike John and the apostles We're living on the other side of the church age. We're living on the other side of Israel being regathered into the land like the prophets prophesied. Still in a a state of unbelief, but nevertheless regathered. We can look back and we can study church history and we can see that these letters were history written beforehand. They are also a prophetic foreview of the church age. And that's why we see so much lukewarmness today ahead of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the you all here is not just the seven churches, but it's he that hath an ear. Seven times in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 it says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The you all is he that has an ear. Do you have an ear today? He that has an ear listens and obeys. With you all, with y'all. That means them and us, the church universal. These words are for us. This blessing is for us. This closing of the entire 66-book love letter transcends space, and it transcends centuries of time. As much to us in 2023 living in days of apostasy as the seven churches in Asia Minor who likewise were vexed by rising apostasy at the end of the first century. Remember, apostasy began to show itself. Gnosticism, which is another word for American churchianity, which is another word for the spirit and the attitude that pervades our seminaries 
in our Christian colleges and our churches. It began to rise in the first century. And John's epistles and John's gospel were written to confront this false teaching. So these early believers to whom Revelation was initially addressed were facing the same spirits of the age that we face today. Therefore, us, them plus us. Let us hear this blessing and be blessed thereby. Let me do just a quick exegesis here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Have you ever heard the name or the word charis? It's a name sometimes you hear. Um, There was a little, little coffee shop in Kathmandu called Charis. It was run by Korean believers. That's the Greek word for grace. Grace is God's bestowing of a blessing upon us that we don't deserve. It's the positive side of mercy. Mercy is God not bestowing upon us what we do deserve. It's God's mercy that in Christ we can escape hell. It's God's grace that in Christ we can inherit the kingdom. Some have described grace aptly, God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2 that a measure of this grace hasn't only appeared to some but it has appeared to all men and it has something to teach us. God's grace, it says in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Savior and the great God. And the blessed hope is His glorious appearing for the church, the rapture. The grace of God has appeared to all men. It's appeared to all men. The coming or the appearing of Christ here in Titus 2 uh, verse 13 is where, is in Greek is where we get the English word epiphany. It's the same exact epiphany that Paul refers to in 2 Timothy 4 when he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, but not to me only, but to them all them also which love his appearing. The blessed hope of the believer. This grace has appeared to all men. Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men. He's the Savior of the world in a providential way. In a providential way, grace has appeared to all men. In other words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is available. It's available. But turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. This grace that has appeared to all men, 1 Timothy 4.10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, Paul speaking of his ministry, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, 
specially of those that believe. You see, the grace of God to which John refers in this concluding blessing has appeared to all men. It's available, but oh my friends, it's not automatic. It's only efficacious to those that believe. Especially to those that believe. It's only efficacious to those who are drawn by the Spirit of God in His divine providence and who believe and trust in the Messiah. The you all in Revelation 22-21 isn't all men to whom the grace of God has appeared. The you all is specially them that believe. Specially them that believe. Praise God. Praise God that providentially His grace is available to all, but it's not automatic. And these people out here, these wicked people out here, some of them who claim to be Christians that boast in their sin and celebrate their vile wickedness and they excuse it by saying, Jesus died for my sins. As if they can just live and celebrate. That's wicked as hell. That's from the pit of hell. And those are folks that mock and scoff the grace of God that has appeared to all men and they will pay for it in the devil's hell. God is not mocked. Let me tell you why Christ's atonement is not limited to those who believe and are saved, it's because the chief beneficiary of that atonement is not man. It's Christ. It's the Messiah. It's the anointed one of God. And I've said this here before and I'm going to say it again. Christ is glorified in the salvation of those that believe. But He's also glorified in the judgment and the damnation of the wicked. His atonement brings Him glory in salvation And it brings him glory and grants him the authority in damnation. Christ be praised. This word grace, I don't know if you're aware. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 12 verse 4. You're going to ask, what in the world does this have to do with grace? Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Paul goes on to talk about the spiritual gifts. The word gift here in English, in Greek, is the word, I don't like pronouncing Greek from the pulpit, it's a dead language, so we don't really know how it was pronounced. And one of my old professors, who loved to teach Daniel Revelation, warned the preacher, he was also uh, my, preach, uh, my preaching uh, professor, warned us not to promote, uh, pronounce Greek from the pulpit, but I'm going to do it anyway. Keris maton. So in other words, the word translated gifts here is the, comes from the same root as grace. Spiritual gifts are spiritual graces. It's the same word. They're graces. So if they're graces, if your spiritual gifts and my spiritual gifts, which may be different, are graces, then it automatically follows when it comes to our spiritual gifts. And the use of them in the ministries to what God has called us. It automatically follows what Paul says in Romans 11 verse 6. If by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In other words, your spiritual gift isn't earned. And it's not deserved. 
it makes you no better or no more important than the next member of the body of Christ in his or her gifting. And my friends, understand that there are diversities of gifts. Paul goes on to refer to these as different administrations in chapter 12, verse 5. Different operations, chapter 12, verse 6. We have different gifts in the body of Christ, and they're all graces. And that means that no gift is better than another. No gift is necessarily more useful than another. It means that if your gift is something else, quit trying to be like the next guy. Be obedient in the graces that the Holy Spirit has given you. Some have the gift of prophecy. Prophecy isn't foretelling, it's foretelling. It means to speak the word of God blunt. Maybe you don't have that gift. Maybe you have a gift of mercy. Use it and quit trying to be like the prophet. Learn a little something from him. But the prophet's no better than you. And if you're the prophet, look at the guy with mercy. You're no better than him. He's no better than you. Learn from him. Spiritual gifts are graces. We can't forget that. Same spirit, all graces. I think it's worth uh, drawing our attention to that. We don't have problems in this church despising the giftings of others. But my friends, it's a big problem. Go on Facebook and look at Christians going back and forth about a, about a bunch of stuff. Maybe they need to be told that gift is grace. Don't let the heart be established with meats, but rather with grace. It's worth saying. The grace of our Lord. Lord. In this last blessing. Let's look at that word. We use it a lot. In Greek, the word means master. Or one with authority. We flippantly or in a trifling way often say Jesus is Lord. Or Jesus is my Lord. Do you realize that you are saying Jesus is your master? He's your authority? Do you say that and mean it? Man, we shouldn't flippantly say such a thing. The thief on the cross recognized Jesus as Lord. Not just, Lord, save me, but Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. For that thief to have said that, that Jewish thief, he had to recognize in that moment that Christ was indeed the Messiah of Israel and that His kingdom was indeed coming. He was the professed Messiah. He was the authority. And Jesus responded, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Did you know Christ's lordship is the most important part of the Great Commission. Turn to Matthew 28. We all, a lot of us learned Matthew 28, 19 and 20 as kids. We memorize it. It's the Great Commission there in the book of Matthew. But I've never understood why we leave out the most important part of it. Yes, indeed, 19 and 20 are important. But at the beginning of verse 19, we have a therefore. And we never stop to ask, what is it there for? And therefore, we leave off the most important part of the Great Commission. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 is the bedrock of the Great Commission. It's why we are to go and preach Christ. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. 
Christ Jesus has been given all power and authority. He is Lord. And because He is Lord, we should go therefore and preach Him to the ends of the earth. We shouldn't go and play patty cakes with man-centered religion and doctrines of devils. We should go and preach Him. Preach Him to the ends of the earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Bringing them into a right relationship with the Son of God. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. Bringing them into a right relationship with the church of God. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Bringing them into a right relationship with the Word of God. That is our commission. Precisely because Christ is Lord. And lo, I am with you always. Now, some of those modern Bibles say always. There's a slight tinge of difference between all way and all ways. We don't use all way anymore. But think of it this way. All way, all along the way. All ways at all times. Jesus isn't saying, I'm with you at all times here. He's saying, I am with you as Lord all along the way as you go and obey this commission. It presupposes... Our obedience. Amen. Jesus being Lord, having all power, is the bedrock of the Great Commission. I think we've forgotten that. That's why our Great Commission efforts in modern day churchianity are so man-centered. The word Lord, here's a little piece of trivia. If you're reading your English King James Bible in the Old Testament, you'll see the word Lord in all capital letters. And then you'll see Lord, little o-r-d. Those are two different Hebrew words. Some of you know this. And I've talked about it before in this study. But Lord with all capital letters is the, fa- is the, is the famed tetragrammaton that we translate Jehovah. The yod heh vav that the religious Jew won't pronounce. It's the name of God. Some, some translate it Yahweh. I, I'm not convinced that's accurate. I think that's kind of a modern day scholarly thing that German scholars were looking for some new thing in the 19th century. But Lord in all caps is Jehovah. God is Lord. He's Lord over all His creation. Lord with little O-R-D is the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai means someone that is a master or has rule over you personally. So Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah or Yehovah in Hebrew is Lord of all. The great God, the great King. Lord Adonai is my Lord. It's a personal relationship we can have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 10, David said, The Lord said unto my Lord. In Hebrew, Naam, Yehovah, Adonai. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. David called his son his descendant, the Messiah, his Lord, because Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. Now, when you get to the New Testament, the word we see for Lord combines both elements of the Hebrew words. 
The word kurios in Greek, Lord, includes overall the notion of Jehovah as well as Adonai, the personal lordship we have through Christ Jesus. So there's only one word translated Lord in the New Testament. And it summarizes them both. But anytime you see all caps in the Old Testament, that's Jehovah. The question is, is Jesus Christ your Lord? Do you acknowledge His authority as over all things? As over the nations? As over the, even this old wicked nation of ours? As over the wicked and the righteous? Do you acknowledge that? Do you acknowledge Him as Lord and authority in your personal life? Is He Lord to you? Or is He a genie in the bottle? Your buddy? Or like some of them used to say, my homeboy. No, my friends, Jesus Christ is Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means He has authority. All power and authority. Do we live as if we believe that? Do we preach Him as if we know that? That's a question for us today in this concluding blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus. Jesus. That's His name. That's His name. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, we have this name first introduced to us. We only know Him in the Old Testament as the Messiah. The Messiah, the Mashiach. The Son of God. But in Matthew 1.21 we are told. Joseph is told by the angel about Mary. And she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Why is he called Jesus? Because he will die for your sins? No. Because he will save his people from their sins. But Jesus died for our sins. It's not a big deal. I can go out here and sleep with whatever moves. I can go out here and smoke the dope and shoot up the drugs and steal and lie and bear false witness against my neighbor, claim to be Christian and claim to talk about Christian ideals that, uh, that, that founded this country and then persecute some innocent Christian missionaries to the end of the earth. It's okay. Jesus died for my sins. No, friends. No. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus died to save you from your sins. And if you're lollygagging and celebrating and joying and, sell and clapping in your sins, then you don't know this Jesus. You have followed another Jesus, the false Jesus that Paul warned the churches about. Jesus didn't die for your sins. Jesus died to save you from your sins. And you can only be saved. By His shed blood. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sins. It's His name because He came to save us from our sins. In Greek, the word is Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. Jesus is the English translation of these words. Jesus in English. Now, there's a lot of folks out here who get hung up. Well, 
Yeshua is the name that his mother gave him. And yet we're out here calling him Jesus. Who would call somebody a name other than their mother? We don't translate names in other languages. you got to call him Yehoshua or Yeshua or you're not as spiritual as I am. Now that's ridiculous because the New Testament writers didn't use the name Yeshua in the New Testament. They used the word Jesus, which is a Greek translation of the word Hebrew. In Hebrew, when I go to Israel and I introduce myself and I converse with Israelis, I introduce myself as Yeshai. My name is Yeshai. Yeshai is the Hebrew version of Jesse. Okay? So a lot of folks make a big deal about that. Notwithstanding, when I'm sharing the gospel with Israelis, I use the word Yeshua. I want to make sure they understand I'm talking about the Jewish Messiah and not fake Catholic weakling Jesus exposed and humiliated hanging on a crucifix. But a lot of folks get hung up on that. But I speak English. In God's great providence and His sovereignty, He knew that English would be the international language of the end times. And that's undoubtedly so today. It's not going to change. And he gave us a Bible we can trust in the international language, the highest form of that international language of the end times. So I use the name Jesus. I understand if you want to use his Hebrew name, but let's don't get hung up on that stuff. Jesus is what we find in the Koine Greek. Jesus here in in, uh, the New Testament, Yeshua in Hebrew. Why that name that can be translated in so many languages? Not every name can be translated in other languages, but Jesus can, Yeshua can, Isa, Yeshu, Yeshua, Jesus, Jesu, Jesus, because Jesus shall save his people from their sins. That's his name. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, we use that word Christ as if it's Christ's last name. It's not his last name. It's not his last name. It's not his sure name. Christ is his office. In Greek, Christos. Christos is the Greek, Koine Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Mashiach means anointed. It's where we get the word in English Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. What is the Messiah of Israel? He's the anointed one of God. The anointed one to save Israel and to restore her and the anointed one who is a light to the Gentiles. He is the Messiah. He is referred to in the great prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy that we talked about in depth in this study. He is referred to by His office Messiah, Mashiach the Prince. In Psalm 2, my anointed. In Psalm 2, that's the word in Hebrew, the same word. It's translated there. It's Mashiach. My Messiah, Paul uh, is written about there, is the Son of God. The kings of the earth gather themselves together against God's anointed, His Messiah. But it will fail. Now this word Christ here is his office. It's his position. And because he is Messiah, all power is given to him in heaven and in earth. 
He's the anointed of God. Now, you in your life, Christ may not be your Lord, but He's Christ whether you like it or not. He's Mashiach in your life and over your life whether you like it or not. And God laughs at the nations. God laughs at the United Nations. The United Nations was doomed the day it was established. God laughs at the idea that the nations would gather themselves together and overthrow His Messiah. He laughs at that. He also laughs at the wicked who plot to to, uh, overthrow the just and the righteous. He may not be your Lord, but He is Christ, whether we welcome it or believe it or not. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What an incredible blessing. Now, we've talked about in these last of Revelation chapter 22, we've tried to hearken back to some of the Bibles first. Using that old Bible study rule, the law of the first mention. We ought to always consider the first time a word or a concept appears in the Bible as we study subsequent appearances. Because those first appearances in the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit set a tone for us. So, I think we should look at the Bible's first blessing. And I'm not going to get through it all today because I think it's an interesting opportunity for us to define some words we hear a lot in Christian circles that we're really not familiar with. There are different types of blessings. And the Bible is full of them culminating with this last blessing in Revelation. But turn, before we look at the Bible's first blessing, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. This is kind of an introduction to the context of the Bible's first blessing. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. The Bible's first blessing was uttered by Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, the King of Salem, a type of Jesus the Messiah when he blessed Abraham. That's the Bible's first blessing. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. Now we've talked about this Melchizedek in our study on Revelation. I believe, And I wouldn't fight you on this. I wouldn't argue with you on this. But I believe that Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah. And in the days that he lived and blessed Abraham, he would have been considered without age and very old. If you look at the chronologies there. So I believe he was the last bridge to the pre-flood earth and was a priest of the Most High God. A type of Jesus Christ. Some would say it was a pre-incarnate Christ himself. You can go back and listen to the studies we did on that. But we're told here, Genesis 14, now Abraham has gone out with his servants, I think he had 400 men, and chased down these kings who had raided the land, had captured uh, the king of Sodom, and had taken Lot prisoner. Abraham drew the sword, rounded up his servants, and went after these kings to get Lot Lot back. And he caught up with him, with them in the north of modern-day Israel near Dan. There's a site at Dan in Israel today where they've unearthed the gate 
from the period of the Canaanites. They've unearthed the Canaanite gate that goes back to the days of this event. And so you can actually go stand and look at this gate, and it's the very gate that Abraham walked through to get Lot. It's an amazing place in Israel. But here in Genesis 14, he comes back having rescued his nephew. In verse 18, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Salem is, modern, is Jerusalem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram, his name hadn't been changed yet by God, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So here we have this first blessing. Now remember, a blessing is a prayer or a statement or a wish vocalized for good fruit or benefit upon another. But there are types of blessings. And here we see two types of blessings, one in verse 19 and one in verse 20. Now we've heard these words before, but maybe we're not familiar with what they are. Verse 19 is a type of blessing I would call a benediction. Verse 20 is a type of blessing I would call a doxology. Now we've heard those words before. We sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessing flows, at least us in Baptist circles. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The doxology. Well, what's a doxology? We talk about benedictions. Some liturgical church services will have a benediction. Well, what are these things? They're types of blessings. They're modeled for us here. A benediction is the act of blessing or giving thanks or praise for a favor. It's, a, it's pronounced in response to something. In other words, a benediction is a blessing because. Verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. This is the response of Melchizedek because Abraham had returned safely and was able to rescue his nephew Lot and the king of Sodom. It was a blessing because God had protected him and delivered him. It's a benediction. Then verse 20, and he, or, or and Melchizedek, blessed, said, blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. A doxology is a particular form of blessing or benediction that gives glory to God. It gives glory to God. So here we have the first blessing, which is a benediction and a doxology. And I think it behooves us to, in this spirit, look at some of the blessings, the benedictions, and the doxologies of Holy Scripture. Now, I'm not going to get to that today. I don't want to keep you here long. It's a great little study. But there are countless blessings in the Bible between the first blessing in Genesis 14 and the very last one in Revelation 22. 
Does anybody know what the next blessing is after Abraham is met by the king of Salem, Melchizedek? Anybody know? It's in the same context that we see the very first use of the word love. God blesses Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 for his willingness to offer up his only son as a sacrifice. It's also the first time we see the word love in the scriptures, thereby uniting it with the concept of sacrifice. The law of the first mention would tell us that love biblically is tied to self-sacrifice. And that's something the world has forgotten today. In Genesis chapter 27, Isaac blesses Jacob the deceiver with the same blessing that God gave to Abraham. Or the same promise. Isaac blesses Jacob the deceiver with the same promise God gave to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. I will bless those that bless thee and I will curse those that curse thee. Remember Jacob dressed up like his brother Esau and put fur, I mean put animal skins on him and deceived his father. And Jacob got the blessing. In Genesis chapter 48, Jacob pronounces a blessing upon Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, after he comes to Egypt. In Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his sons. His last will and testament is a blessing upon the tribes of Israel. Turn to Genesis 49.10. Genesis 49.10, chapter 49, uh, Jacob blesses all of his sons. Verse 10 is especially interesting with regard to his fourth son, Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh here is a word used as a reference to the Messiah, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman, the substance of the Bible's first promise, Shiloh would come from the tribe of Judah. And Judah would not be without a lawgiver until Shiloh came. And that's exactly what God did. All you have to do is look at the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. So Jacob's blessing upon Judah prophesies the Messiah. He would come from the tribe of Judah. There's a special blessing worth reading in Numbers chapter 6. It's a blessing for the children of Israel that they were to... Speak one to another. I like to use this blessing here if I'm preaching to a Jewish audience, whether it's on the streets of Tel Aviv or on top of Mount Gilboa, like I was several years ago. I like to end my preaching with this blessing. Number 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make His face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord, capitals, Jehovah, lift up His countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That's a precious blessing given to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Moses' blessing upon the children of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, before his death. This has got a very... 
a nice little passage worth memorizing, just like number 6 in this long blessing. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 26 through 29. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy him. Then in verse 29, Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. Praise God. The essence of that blessing upon Israel is the essence of the last blessing in the Bible for the church. As John says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I can't help but think, happy are we, O church, a people saved by the Lord. In Ruth chapter 1, you have an unexpected blessing pronounced upon a despairing widow. Ruth chapter 1, I'll read that. Those are precious words. Naomi's husband and her sons have died. And she's left with her widowed daughters-in-law. And she tells them, you may as well go back home to your own land. Try to make something out of your lives. In despair. But Ruth pronounces a blessing. A Moabite. Not a daughter of Abraham. A daughter of Lot. A Moabite. Ruth said, verse 16, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. What a precious blessing bestowed on an elderly, despairing widow. And because of Ruth's faithfulness, she became heir in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 2. We have another famous blessing in the Bible. Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. The blessing of Simeon upon Mary and Joseph. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. He's the Messiah. And for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon blessed Joseph and Jesus, I mean Mary's mother, I mean Jesus' mother Mary, and declared Jesus to be the Messiah. And Mary's sorrow was, would indeed be a blessing to the rest of the world. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Look in Luke chapter 24. Jesus didn't leave this earth. The, the written word doesn't close its pages without a blessing. And the, the living word didn't leave this earth without a blessing. Luke 24, 50 and 51. And he led them out as far as to Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. 
And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. We know that Jesus blessed his disciples. His last words were a blessing as he rose up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Now, we don't know the words of that blessing here in Luke, but we do if we turn over to Acts. Acts chapter 1. We know the essence of that blessing, for it is a great blessing. His disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, no, guys, you got it all wrong. We're going to build this church. It's a replacement for Israel. Forget about them, folks. They cursed me. They blasphemed me. They said they wanted Caesar as their king. I'm done with them. We're going to make a new Israel. Forget them, forget them Jews. That's not what he said. <laughs> Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. There is a future for the nation of Israel. They will one day wake up and call for Christ because he's their only hope. But in the meantime, Jesus said, I've got another job for you. Luke says he blessed them. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come, come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus blessed his disciples. What a blessing. You shall be my witnesses. From where we get the word martyr in English, marturius or in, in Greek. You will be my martyrs, my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Paul uses the word ambassador. That's a blessing. What greater blessing is there than to be a witness to the ends of the world for the Messiah? That's the essence of Jesus' blessing at his ascension. Look at Acts chapter 20. I'm getting ready to wrap up. Verses 30 and 31, Paul meets the Ephesian elders for the last time. It's a sad time. And he warns them, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. The very thing John is dealing with when he writes Revelation. Very thing. In Ephesus. By John's day, Ephesus had lost its first love. So these things did indeed happen. Therefore, verse 31, watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst all them which are sanctified. That was Paul's last blessing to his friends and he never saw again. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So those are some of the well-known blessings in the Bible. Blessings can be God upon men. They can be men upon God. So God can bless men. 
Men can bless God and men can bless one another. Blessings. But there are other types. Next time we'll look at some benedictions in the Bible. A benediction can be God upon men or men upon God because. You have doxology. A doxology is men upon God. There is no doxology where a God doxologizes men. And then there's another interesting word for blessing that we use. But I wonder if we know what it means. It's the word beatitude. So we'll talk a little bit about that next time. But keep in mind this first blessing. Because it elicits a response from Abraham. The very response that, we, that should be elicited from us from this last blessing in the Bible. And I'll talk about that next time. So my friends, in closing, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now I'm not going to say the last word in the Bible because I'm going to preach on the last word of the Bible. So I believe we might have two left. If you can stomach it, two, maybe three max left and then we are done. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for God's riches at Christ's expense. We're thankful that all power is given unto Jesus. We're thankful that He came to save His people from their sins. We're thankful that He is Christ. Christ isn't His last name any more than damn is your last name, God. Your God Almighty, He is Jesus Christ. And thank You that through His blood, His death, His burial, His resurrection, that grace which has appeared to all men can be efficacious upon those specially who believe. Thank You for drawing us, Lord, to salvation and for the grace of God shed abundantly on our hearts. Lord, we pray in the spirit of John there at the end of the book of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. To Him be glory and honor and praise. Just like those saints and those beasts and those elders cried out to the Lamb who was slain in Revelation 5. Lord, help us as we bring this long, decade-long study to a close. May we finish in the near future on a high note on an encouraging note and on a note that elicits us to go forth into all the world and preach the gospel. In the name of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.